My name is Brian White. I am so glad that you're here this morning. Um, as uh, Trevor alluded to in his video from Honduras, we had a group down to Honduras. We talked about this a little bit last week, but unfortunately, uh, we had some mishaps and some passports were stolen. So um, a few of them were able to go down, and they're actually on their way back today. But we have several who are here right now, and, and we got some plans we're going to work on to get them back down uh, fairly soon. Um, we need to work on that once he gets back. We also just had our youth. Yeah, Marcos is like, yeah, I want to go down. Um, but our youth just came back from Montana. We had a group of youth uh, go down to Montana uh, to camp last week, and... I can't wait to hear about that. I saw a lot of the pictures, and it just looked like a blast. Yeah, yeah. So we started a new series last week on the book of Daniel. And, and last week, we talked about the context. It was in the midst of what's called the Babylonian captivity. And, and uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But this was a time in Israel's history, a real time, when they were, they were taken from their homes, and they were dispersed into a foreign land. And um, the, Daniel is about really living and learning how to uh, be true to God, the children of God, while you're living in the midst of a foreign, foreign land. And, and I think it's just so pertinent for us today. And, and thinking about Babylon as a metaphor uh, for so many things. It was definitely a, a historical kingdom, but there's so much there for us today. And I love Daniel. I remember growing uh, my mom would read me these stories as a little kid, and then in VBS we always had them, and they're just they're amazing, fun stories. Uh, we're going to start with chapter two. Uh, Daniel chapter two opens up with a very troubled Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And last week we saw that the king, the king had captured the holy lands and relocated all of God's children uh, throughout the, the land of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. But, but the king wasn't troubled about all of the, I mean, thousands of people that they had killed in the midst of that. And the king was not troubled about all of the thousands of people who he relocated in the midst of this. Now, he might have been, though, and I wonder, and this is just kind of a rabbit hole, but he's troubled about a dream that he had in the middle of the night. And we don't know what the dream is at this point, but eventually we're going to find out that the dream has to do with a vision that he has about the future of his kingdom, is the point. And then the kingdoms that would follow him. So he's thinking about his legacy. And at the heart of this dream was the fact that for all he did to grow and expand his kingdom and all the people he killed, all the people, the families he displaced, his legacy is not going to last. So the king wakes up and he summons his magicians his enchanters and his sorcerers. And these are the wise men of the day. This is, this is his court. And he asked them to interpret his dream. And that was kind of business as usual back then. But he did something. He kind of threw a wrench in. And this really, really threw them. He didn't tell them what the dream was. He wants them to tell him what his dream was. And then he wants them to interpret his dream. And the king says, if you can tell me what I dreamed... And then what the dream means, you're going to be rewarded over and over and over again. But if you can't, you are all going to be destroyed. 
Now, this might remind you of another Old Testament story, uh, notched down a bit, but you can basically change the names of the Daniel story here to the names of the Joseph story in Genesis. And you get the, the same basic plot. Nebuchadnezzar is Pharaoh, right? And Daniel is Joseph and the magicians and the, the enchanters and the sorcerers and Daniel. It's actually the exact same. And, and we aren't going to talk about this because it would be a rabbit hole. But most of Daniel is actually in Aramaic. Uh, but in, in this section right here, it's actually in Hebrew. It's the exact same cut and paste from the Joseph story in Genesis. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And if you remember, Joseph ends up running all of Egypt at the end. But Daniel goes even further than Joseph did in Genesis. Because the king never told anybody what the dream was. And, and so when Nebuchadnezzar, when he first summons the magicians and the sorcerers and the enchanters, he tells them he wants them to interpret his dream. And they're fine with that. But when he tells them he's not going to tell them what he dreamt, that they need to tell him what his dream was and what it meant. Well, let me read you that. So we'll start at verse 10 of chapter 2. The Chaldeans answered the king, There is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or a chanter or a Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not among the mortals. And we need to remember that line. We're going to come back. No one on earth can do this except the gods who don't live among the humans. So the response of the king to the wise men, it doesn't go over very well. Verse 12, because of this, the king a violent rage, commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The decree was issued, the wise men were about to be executed, and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. And I, I, I love verse 14. There is so much behind the words in verse 14. Daniel responded with prudence and discretion. There are so many practical lessons for us in the book of Daniel, but I, this one's amazing. We saw last week, they stripped Daniel of his Hebrew name, right? His, his name in Hebrew means God judges. And they renamed him Belteshar, which meant protect the life of the king in Babylonian. And, and the point was back then, and we saw this, Daniel didn't fuss about them changing his name. Because he responded with prudence and discretion. So Daniel surveys the battlefield, and he decides what is a hill worth dying on and what's not. They can call him whatever they want. He just let that go. This is responding with prudence and discretion. 
Because Daniel knows he has only so many choices and he's not going to waste them on something trivial. He's going to bide his time. He's going to wait for an opportunity when he can actually make a difference. But how many people, they, they just, you know, they, they would have put up a fight just at changing their name and, and wasted the chance and never had an opportunity when it actually would have made a difference for real change to stand up. Daniel is smart. And so he waits for an opportunity that's going to bring real change. And he gets a window right here. And it's going to bring about the long victory. He knew his time would come when he heard the king wanted to destroy all of the wise men in the land, including Daniel and his friends. So if you know me at all, you, you know I love dogs. I'm a total dog person. But one of the things that separates us from dogs, right, and all of the animal kingdom, is that we have a space between stimulus and response. I mean, any of us who had, you know, Psych 101, we, we know about Pavlov and <laughs> drool. And it can be really hard. But humans have a space between stimulus and response. Meaning, we have the ability to observe stimuli and to pause and decide for ourselves how we're going to act upon that stimuli. And I, I think of this space like a muscle. And the more you exercise this muscle, this, this, this space between stimulus and response, the more, the more you exercise it, the stronger it will get. But it will atrophy if you don't exercise that space. And that pause will diminish, that pause will wither away, and that means we just knee-jerk our reactions, and we know that never goes well. But Daniel responds with prudence and discretion. Translated, Daniel paused before he reacted, before he did something stupid, so he could actually choose his actions. And, and, and rather than let the situation lead him, he decided he was going to lead this situation, right? And so he requests the king would see him so he can actually explain the dream to the king. Because, you know, we're we wired for fight or flight. That means when we're threatened, we either come out guns blazing or we just cower and we let the threat take us over. But Daniel teaches us there is a third option. He pauses between stimulus and response so he can observe the lay of the land and choose how he's going to lead the situation. Listen to what happens. Daniel 2, 17. Then Daniel went to his home and he informed his companions, Hannah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon would not perish. And I think this is fascinating. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel goes to his friends. He tells them what's going on, and he asks them to join him in taking it to God. And he asks them to join him in asking for God to have mercy upon them all. Because Daniel doesn't just ask for prayers for himself and for his friends. 
He wants them to pray for the rest of the wise men of Babylon, that they not perish. And I think this is important to note. Because you remember what they'd just gone through. I mean, Babylon had just come in, destroyed the holy lands, destroyed the temple, Jerusalem, everything. They carted the whole, the whole nation, those who they did not kill, off to a foreign land. And they dispersed them throughout Babylon. They forced them to intermarry. They forced them to take on their culture. They forced them to have new names. They forced them to learn their new language. And these wise men of Babylon, they were the king's confidants all along. They were the king's advisors all along. Meaning, the king would add plenty of conversation with these wise men before they invaded Jerusalem. Before they relocated Daniel's people. These guys were in on the conversations. When Daniel and his friends pray for mercy upon the wise men of Babylon, it meant they were not only praying for those who would have participated in their captivity, but they were praying for those who were at least partially responsible for the entire Babylonian captivity. And I just wonder if this is what Jesus was thinking in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and says rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Then Jesus goes on, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, but be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God reveals to Daniel... The king's dream, just like he did with Joseph and uh, Pharaoh back in Genesis. And I don't want us to read God as a genie here, you know. I, I think there's a potential pitfall here. That, that Daniel just manipulated God to do his bidding. And sometimes I think if we, 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 somehow we start thinking that if I just ask God, you know, the right thing in the right way, and then God's like obligated to do what I ask. That's not what's going on here at all. That's not the point. God can do what God wants to do. But I think God observes the situation. And, and just like Daniel's name in Hebrew, you know, God judges the situation. And then he acts in accordance to his mercy. So after God gave Daniel the vision, uh, he thanks God with a beautiful hymn of praise. And I want you to read that this week on your own. But then next in 2.24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he said, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. I will give the king the interpretation. And I just think this is so rare. And especially in our Babylon today, meaning our world, our culture around us, that someone would plead for the well-being of their enemies. Our world is left behind eye for an eye. 
I mean, that doesn't go far enough anymore. You know, our world teaches us, you make every inch of whoever you deem is your enemy pay. Just pay for standing against you. You know, revenge, retribution, make them pay. But Daniel teaches us a very, very, very different way. And I think it's amazing what happens 225, Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answers, no wise men or enchanters or magicians or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dreams and your visions of your head as you lie in the bed, they were these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter. And the revealer of mysteries disclosed to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you might understand the thoughts of your mind. So remember, when the king had asked the wise men and the enchanters and the diviners and the magicians to tell his dream, they said no one on earth can do except for the gods that don't live among mortals. So what does Daniel say? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has revealed it. There is a God in heaven. Do not hear there is a God in heaven and we are here and he is there and he doesn't care about what happens on earth. And that he doesn't interact with us. That is the exact opposite thing that Daniel is saying here. Not only is Daniel saying that God interacts with creation as in present and active within creation. He's also going to show God uses people and situations for his purposes. And he bends the evil that humans do to bring about redemption. He forces evil to do his purposes. Now this may have happened 700 years before Jesus, but it's a lesson on how the kingdom of heaven can be experienced on earth and how God does this work. So much of Daniel, it sets the groundwork for Jesus who taught us that it would, we are supposed to pray that it starts looking more and more on earth as it does in heaven, right? So God not only tells Daniel the exact dream that the king had, but he tells him what it means. So here's the dream, 31. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. And this statue was huge, and its brilliance, extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. It, its legs of iron, and its feet of iron and partly of clay. 
And as you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, but it was struck the statue of its feet, iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like a shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel was able to tell the king what no one else could. For one reason only. Because there was a God in heaven who is present and alive within creation. So here's the interpretation. This was the dream, Daniel says. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the king the power, the might, the glory, into whose hand he has given human beings, wherever they live, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. And after you shall arise another inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth, and then there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the strength of iron will be in it. And you saw the iron mixed with the clay, and the toes of the feet were part iron, part clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they'll mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, the king, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall his kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all the kingdoms, bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain. The interpretation is trustworthy. Here's the short version of what he just said. The dream is about the king's legacy. It's keeping him up at night. What's going to happen when I'm gone? How long will the kingdom last? And the statue is the sequence of this kingdom. There's a golden age. Then there's a silver age. Then there's a bronze age. Then there's an iron age. Babylon is gold. Persia, silver. Greece, bronze. And Syria is iron. And there are different theories on that, and we don't have time going to all of them. But the big point is, the dream says, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of gold is not going to last. Earthly kingdoms are going to come. Earthly kingdoms are going to go. They're going to wither away. But the fifth is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom. And it is never going to be destroyed. The kingdom of God is coming. Nothing can stand against it. 246, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, commanded a grain offering, incense be offered, 
And the king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. The king promoted Daniel, gave him many gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king that he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel remained at the royal court. The king of Babylon, who invaded, conquered God's holy city, Jerusalem. The king of Babylon, who dispersed God's children throughout his empire, just upended them and moved them, ends up witnessing to the reality there is a king a God in heaven. And his presence in the world is true. And not only that, but just like Joseph in Genesis, who ended up running the whole nation of Egypt, Daniel ends up running, ruling the whole province of Babylon. And his friends are given their own positions of leadership as well. All because Daniel responded, what? With prudence and discretion. And he turned a very, very threatening situation into an opportunity to witness to the world the fact that there is a God in heaven. There are some amazing lessons in Daniel 2 here for us as we live in our own Babylonian captivity. First, Daniel teaches us, choose your own battles. Daniel teaches, we have the power to pause between stimulus and response and, and, and to choose for ourselves how we're going to respond. When we fail to do this, we make really bad decisions, right? In our homes, at work, it doesn't matter. I mean, somebody spouts off at you and you just return back. And then things escalate. And the next thing, somebody's sleeping on the couch or your employee file gets an update that you don't want documented in your file. I mean, we know how this works. Because every one of us have fallen into this trap over and over. We take the bait, we bite. But you have the power to say, I am not going to let this situation lead me. I'm going to lead this situation. And how do we do this? Well, Daniel, and, and same with jo Joseph in Genesis and Ruth and Naomi and Ruth. I, you know, there are so many great examples of this. But, you know, the Stockdale Paradox. I don't know if you've read Good to Great or any, but, but you know, Stockdale Paradox, named after Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner in Vietnam, eight years prisoner of war. And over those eight years, Stockdale, he never lost hope. Never lost hope that he would be saved. But over those eight long years in being a prisoner of war in Vietnam, he said he noticed that all of the prisoners who said, I'm going to be out by Christmas, or I'm going to be home for Thanksgiving, they were the ones who perished. Because they died of a broken heart when their fantasy didn't come true. You know, Viktor Frankl talks about the exact same thing in Man's Search for Meaning. And if you have not read Man's Search for Meaning, you need to read Man's Search for Meaning. He saw in the Nazi concentration camps the exact same thing. When someone lost hope, they perished. 
But the Stockdale Paradox teaches, I, I think, something even more important. When you're in crisis and you have, you have to confront the brutal facts of your situation. You have to be just a, a foot in reality of what's going on. But you never lose faith that this reality is going to change. Having an unwavering faith that with God's help, you can and you will prevail regardless of the difficulties, but at the same time have the discipline to confront the, the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they are. Now, we know this as Easter people is the big, amazing gift, you know. The worst thing, we know the worst thing, the tomb, is never the last thing. Bitterness, the cross, is never the end of the story, right? No matter how bad things get, things are going to get better. Because we're resurrection people. And Daniel just exemplifies this. So what did he do next? How did he lead the situation? Well, he prayed. And not only did he pray, but he invited his friends to join him. And they prayed for their enemies. They prayed for those who had persecuted them. I mean, it's a, this is 600 years before Jesus, but so much of Daniel, I think, is setting the stage for Jesus to come. And I know this is so countercultural today in our Babylon, but I'll tell you, I am old-fashioned enough to believe that when other people see you respond in ways like this, they're going to give you more and more influence. Because you don't decide you're going to be a leader. You don't decide, I'm going to lead people. You earn the right to lead people as they decide to follow you, as they give you more and more influence because of your integrity, because of your actions. And Daniel, he just highlights this absolute basic leadership lesson. Daniel chose to lead the situation to pause between stimulus and response when his neck was on the line. But he had an unwavering faith that God was present and that God would see him through. And he invites his friends in to take it to God, to pray with him. And then they pray for themselves. They pray for their enemies. And then next they sought a meeting with the king. And they asked the king to spare the lives of their enemies. Because they knew God was going to be there. And the king ended up putting Daniel in charge of the whole place. As Daniel worked within the system to grow his influence little by little as he lived with integrity. His actions matched his profession. And again, I'm just old enough to believe this is still old-fashioned enough to believe this stuff really actually works. And it's out of fashion today. Nowadays, we just blame other people for our problems, we're a victim, you know, that's the style, and I know it. But I just don't think that inspires people. Not in the long run. It does not inspire me at all. Not like someone whose words matches their profession, their actions. Not like someone who leads the situation. Or someone who is so concerned for the welfare of others that they would actually pray for their enemies and put themselves in harm's way to protect them. That's what Daniel did. And this is how the kingdom of God works. 
So what happened? The whole situation became an opportunity for the world to clearly witness that there is a God in heaven. Why did Babylon do this? Well, the king was so inspired that he put Daniel and his friends in charge. And we're living in Babylon today. Don't make no, no, no mistake about it. We are residents of God's kingdom. This is our real home with God. If you live your life as a disciple, it's going to matter. And people are going to see. And they're going to take notice. And as they do so, they're going to give you more and more and more influence in their lives if your integrity between your profession and your actions lines up. Don't ever forget the most important lesson. There is a God in heaven. And this God interacts with creation. And this God works through us to bring about his kingdom. That's all that matters. We pray with me. Lord, I thank you on this day for these heroes of the faith and lessons that you have given us. Help us to learn. Help us to learn to rely on your very real presence. To not rush in, to pause, to pray, to lead, and to live as disciples. In your son's name we pray. Amen.